0: And uh, we're going to spend our time this morning in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Uh, we're hitting the pause button on our study of the book of Daniel uh, for a few weeks. And so today and the next two Sundays, we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew as we set our minds and hearts on Christmas. And we'll pick up Daniel again uh, in the month of January and roll from there. So Matthew chapter 1, I encourage you to take a few notes this morning. You'll be in good shape. Are you familiar with the term living nativity? I think probably you are. A living nativity uh, is a recreation of the manger scene using live actors. And so in, in this instance, the word living is an adjective because it describes the type of nativity we're looking at. It's a living nativity with live actors versus a plywood nativity or a plastic nativity with light bulbs in the characters, something like that. Uh, A living nativity, um, those types of scenes are always valuable for reflection and thinking about uh, the day Jesus was born and and the implications of all of that. Uh, But I've wondered, what if we change the term living nativity so that the word living is not an adjective, but it's a verb? Living nativity. Nativity. It changes the whole meaning of the phrase if we treat the word living uh, like a verb. It now means that this is the way followers of Jesus live out the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We live the nativity. Uh, living nativity means that the birth of Jesus impacts the way we live our lives so that the goal of Christmas is not just nostalgia. Uh, the goal of Christmas is living like Christ, impacting others the way He's impacted us. When we start reading in Matthew chapter 1 here in just a moment, it it may not seem like there's a whole lot there that informs our living. We've got a genealogy, and that takes up the bulk of the chapter, uh, and no one's life verse comes from a genealogy, let's just be honest. Um, But I would say whenever we approach this and ask ourselves, what does this passage teach us about Jesus and more so, how does it impact the way we live our lives, knowing what we know about the Incarnation? Well, then we can begin to be the kinds of people who live the nativity. So I want to show you in this passage today how the Incarnation of Jesus should shape the way you and I live our lives. It ought to have practical day-to-day, uh, a practical day-to-day impact on the way we interact with other people and the way we interact with the Lord. And so follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Akim, Akim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. This passage teaches us how to live the nativity. And I want to highlight for you two ways the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, Impacts the way we live. Now, before I give you the first way, the first teaching point, I want us to unpack verse 1. That's going to help us understand better the application of this passage. So, verse 1 is like a cheapskates carry on, it's a lot of stuff packed into a really small space. And Matthew begins by telling us that this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, at first glance, Uh, This phrase, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, well, it seems like that's the title just for this section, because what comes next in English are all these names. Uh, On a side note, if you want a little tip for how to read these names, it doesn't matter how you pronounce them, just say them with confidence, and no one will correct you (laughs) as we just witnessed. an account of the genealogy. And so it gives us all these names. Uh, That phrase, account of the genealogy, at least, at least is a reference to these names. But there are others, writers and scholars who would say, no, this is more, this is about more than just this list of names. This title, an account of the genealogy, is actually the title for the whole book. So if we can put on our nerd hats for just a bit and do a little bit of word work. Uh, The the book of Matthew opens with two Greek words, Biblos, which means book or scroll, and then Geneseos, which means uh, it can mean genealogy, it can mean beginning, it can mean creation. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word from which we get Genesis. And so the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, opens with these two words scroll and creation or a book of beginnings, a book of new creation. Uh, Whenever the word biblos is used in the New Testament, it always refers to larger writings, like full books of the Bible or other large writings. The word biblos is never a reference to a smaller section of writing like this genealogy here. And then when you look throughout the rest of the Bible, for places where these first two words are placed next to each other, biblos geneseos, You only find them together in two places. Both of those are in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, we're told this is the account or the book or the scroll of the creation of things. And then in Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, same thing, Biblos Geneseos, we're told this is the book of the creation of Adam. So when those two words are put together, the first two words that open Matthew's Gospel, when those two words are put together in the Bible, they always describe, in both cases, creation accounts. Creation of nature and all things. Creation of mankind. And so some would look at the opening words of Matthew's Gospel and say he's telling us more than just here's the genealogy of Jesus. The account here is the book or the story of the new creation that comes through Jesus the Christ, who's the son of David, who is the son of Abraham. These opening words have a gravity to them, a weight. It grips you from the very beginning. It's not just index information. Now you'll read a genealogy. It is telling you something about what Jesus has come to do. This is the book of the new creation that comes through Jesus Christ. The story that is contained in these pages is different and unique from every other story. It holds a special place in the pantheon of God's narrative. Here is Jesus, God in the flesh who has come to us. New creation begins with Him. Other writers have pointed out the interesting way Matthew's Gospel opens and the way it closes. So it opens with these words, a book of new creation And do you know how the Gospel of Matthew closes? It closes with the words of Jesus, and he gives this promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The book opens with new creation. Christ enters and new creation comes. The book closes with Jesus holding us all the way till the end of all things. It seems like an intentional move on the part of Matthew. So Matthew is telling us from the very opening words, the story you're about to hear is significant, it's weighty, it's unique, in that here's how life begins in Jesus Christ. It's an account of the genealogy, Matthew says, of Jesus. Jesus is his earthly name. He's telling us this one lived and walked on planet earth. He entered space and time. He had flesh. We knew him as Jesus. He's a real person And then after giving us the name Jesus, he follows up with three titles. He is Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To call Jesus the Christ is a really big deal. Uh, It seems throughout church history, the word Christ has come to be used almost like Jesus' last name. Like Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name, because the title has been so tightly affixed to his name. But Christ is not a last name. Uh, Christ is a title. Uh, it means anointed one. It means the same thing as the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ in the Greek, Messiah in the Hebrew, He is the anointed one, the promised one, the one through whom God will work salvation for people. Now that term that describes this long-awaited deliverer of God's people, the one of whom the prophets foretold. It's a title of hope and expectation. Jesus is born in space and time, and He is the fulfillment of all the hope and the longing of God's people. There's only one who is the Christ. That's not a title shared by others. It belongs only to one. It is God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives a promise, makes a covenant with King David. And he tells David, your throne will endure forever. Now how is that possible if David has a funeral and a tomb? Well, it's possible because there will be one after David who comes from him but is greater than him. And that is a king who will establish a throne that will last forever and ever. In the title Son of David, we have hints of divinity. The only way a throne is established forever is if the one who sits on that throne is God himself. In the title Son of David, again speaks to one whom God's people expected, waited for, longed for for so very long. Uh, They always look for the one who would be the new David, the enduring David, so to speak. If you'll allow me a sports analogy this morning, we use this type of language sometimes when we describe current athletes in light of past great athletes. So we might look at a certain NBA player and say, Oh, this guy, he's the next Larry Bird. Or he's the next Bill Russell. You know what we're going to say one day long into the future? We're actually going to say these words He's the next Tom Brady. Now, Tom Brady will play till he's 87 years old. (laughs) We just know that's scientific fact. But one day we'll say that. This guy's the next Tom Brady. Well, uh, whenever people talked about this king, this son of David, they're not just saying he's the next in line. They're saying he is the supreme one, the great one. He's the one through whom God fulfills his promise to David. Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham, forms a covenant with him, and he tells Abraham, through you, all people on earth will be blessed. Well, how's that going to happen if Abraham has a funeral? How's that going to happen? If, if all, how will all people on earth be blessed through this one man? Well, it's going to come from a descendant of his who will do something that no one else is capable of doing. Jesus is that son of Abraham, the one who fulfills God's covenant to Abraham. So verse one, I mean, that's a whole week's worth of study in your personal quiet times with the Lord. You just sit with this verse and you soak in the reality of Jesus who is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In this one little verse, Matthew's telling us that this book is about the new creation that comes through the birth of Jesus, the Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises to David and Abraham. So what difference does that make to you? How does that impact tomorrow? To know that Jesus has come to us and he is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What difference does it make? How do we live the nativity in light of verse 1? Well, this is our first teaching point this morning. This verse teaches us that Jesus' birth leads us to love the Lord with all that we are. Our first response to the news of verse 1 is a God-directed response. It is a faith response. Matthew writes with a very clear agenda. He's not just writing mere cold history as if he needs to preserve the facts for future generations. He is a persuasive writer. And so he includes the things he includes, uses the titles he uses in order to woo his readers to this truth that God has come to us in Jesus. And in him is life everlasting. In him is forgiveness. In him is all things good. And so he writes in order to awaken faith in the readers, awaken faith in us. What are we supposed to believe? What does Matthew want us to believe from his account here? Well, he wants you to believe that Jesus did all the work that's necessary for our salvation and that all the work he did is enough work. Jesus isn't inviting you, or excuse me, Matthew isn't inviting you to believe that you can do enough for Jesus to save you. He's inviting you to believe Jesus has done everything required for our salvation. You're to believe that Jesus is enough. He's the son of David, the God who rules. He's the son of Abraham, the God who saves. In Him, all of our striving is over. You work so hard to get God to like you. You dwell with so much guilt over the things you've done wrong or the good things you haven't done or the ways you surmise your life to have fallen short. And so you're constantly in this state of spiritual franticness trying to win God to your side. And doesn't verse 1 tell us all that's over? God has come. Jesus is here. The one we've longed for and hoped for has come to us in Jesus Christ. And so put all of that striving and struggling aside. Our frantic attempts to please a hundred gods and to avoid a thousand demons are over. Our desperate quest to find answers and acquire knowledge that gives us insight into the inner sanctum of God, that's completely finished. Our obsession with moral perfection or at least moral improvement over and against the person we compare ourselves to, that's totally dead. All of our moral sweat and superstitious uh, illusions of life are gone because Christ has come. Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, has come to give you new life. And so, our first response at reading verse 1 should be a response of faith, a response of belief. God's come to us. And it doesn't come with any caveats. He doesn't say He came for you because you're better than others, or He came for you because of religious labels you affix to yourselves or religious deeds you've done, or because He's lucky to have you on His team, it just says He came. He stepped into darkness, brokenness, death, sin. He did all of that to rescue you because He loves you. So we live the nativity when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To know that He came to us and He came for us means I want to give my life to this one who is my king and my God forever and ever. For some of you this morning, it may mean that your response to verse one is your first step of faith. You've been religious, you've been spiritual, but you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life. And today could be the day that the promise of Christmas becomes a reality to you. It's not something you hope for or you wish for. It's something you know because you trust. Jesus is enough. Through his death and his resurrection, he's done all that's required for my salvation. I'm going to trust that. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to let him save me. For others of you, you've walked with Jesus a long time. But still, we struggle to live the nativity in this way, to let Jesus have every part of our lives, to own every little niche and corner of our hearts. Maybe today you need to remember and rest. Remember how He's loved you from the manger to the cross. And rest in the salvation and the grace and the mercy that He has given you today and for every day. Verse 1 teaches us this singular truth, that we are to love the Lord our God with all that we are. That's all from just one little verse. Now verses 2 through 17, the rest of this section is going to inform another way in which we live out the nativity. But before we get there, I want to unpack verses 2 through 17 for you. The genealogy of Jesus shouldn't be read too fast, not just because the names are hard, but because there are a few surprises in there. Uh, There are some things in the genealogy, some questions that come up that we just don't have some real solid answers to. So, for example, uh, we have three neat divisions of 14 generations. Uh, But we know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Matthew did not include every ancestor of Jesus in this list of names. And he didn't intend to. Uh, Matthew is building an argument. He's telling us something about Jesus, about who he is, and and what he alone is uniquely capable of accomplishing. And so he traces this history using three neat sections of 14 generations. Why 14? Again, uh, just a lot of guesswork out there as to why Matthew has used these numbers the way he has. But what's important is, and what's not debatable, is the point Matthew's trying to make in this genealogy That Jesus is uniquely qualified as the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And as you read through the genealogy, there are some names in here that might jump out at you and you say, oh, wow, that's that's a surprise. I didn't see this one coming. One thing that sticks out to me in particular are the names of four women who make the genealogy of Jesus. In Jesus' day, these genealogies normally just recorded the names of male ancestors, But we have four names of women in this passage. They are Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, and then Bathsheba, or as she's identified in verse 6, Uriah's wife. Uh, Each of these women have fascinating stories. Tamar's is found in the book of Genesis. She was daughter-in-law to a man named Judah. Uh, Tamar's husband died, and Judah was supposed to fulfill a vow to give her in marriage to his, youngest son, to his youngest son, but he did not do that. And so Tamar took things into her own hands, and she tricked her father-in-law, and by him gave birth to the twins Perez and Zerah, both of whom are named in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute in the city of Jericho. She protected the two spies that Joshua sent into the city. Ruth was from Moab. I think we forget this so often about Ruth. She's not Jewish by birth. She's a Moabite. And Deuteronomy chapter 23, forbids Moabites from entering the worshiping assembly up to the 10th generation. Look, Israel and Moab were not buddies. Uh, Moab and all from Moab were sworn enemies of Israel and vice versa. And yet Ruth, Ruth, makes the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Uh, Uriah's wife, as she's named in verse 6, Bathsheba. David has an affair with her. She becomes pregnant. And then David has her husband Uriah killed in an attempt to cover it up. Now these names are not here by accident. Matthew isn't held to some extraneous list of names and says, oh, I've got to put them in there. He makes editorial choices as he writes. And he puts these four names in there intentionally. And why is that? What's their significance? I think there's several ways these names are significant. First of all, it's not a small thing that women are named in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus and his church elevates the values of women in a day and age when they had no voice and they had very little value. Second, each of these four women have stories of brokenness associated with them they are in some ways scandalous characters not just from them but you look to many of the names in jesus genealogy there's not a pattern of righteousness here right so if, if you when people do their genealogical research what do we hope to find we want to find that we're connected to royalty or pilgrims or you know great people no one wants to finish their family tree and say good news I come from a long line of draft dodgers, general riffraff, bootleggers. Hooray! No one wants that. We We want to know we're connected to kings. But in the genealogy of Jesus, there's some scoundrels here, some scandalous people. Each of these women have scandal associated with their name to some degree. But then we also have the names of some wicked kings, people like Rehoboam, Abijah, and Joram, They are unequivocally evil. So you might think, well, if I'm building the genealogy of Jesus, I I want every name to be more righteous than the one before, and it's just everyone is out of this world, heroes of the faith type of people. That's not it. We've got all kinds of sinners in this list of names. I think another reason why these four women are important to us is because to the best of our knowledge, all four of these women are Gentiles, There's questions about Bathsheba, uh, but we have no definite designation of her ethnicity in the scriptures. So we could at least say the majority of them are Gentiles, and it's probably safe to say that all four of them are Gentiles. They're not Jewish by birth. That seems to be a big deal. And finally, and perhaps most important, each of their stories involves an element of faith practiced by a Gentile in the face of Israelite unfaithfulness, A Gentile shows faith, while one member of the worshiping community, the covenant community, does not. So what does this tell us about Jesus? I mean, doesn't this tell us, these four names tell us the kind of Savior He is and what He's come to do? He's come to rescue, to save people of all nations, of all ethnicities. He's come not just to be the regional Savior of tiny Israel, but to be the global Savior of all those who would put their faith and trust in Him. Now, I believe that the vast majority of us in this room are not ethnically Jewish. And so when we read this genealogy, our hearts should skip a beat when we come across the names of these women, because it means there's a place for you in God's salvation plan. And so how does the fact that Jesus came to save people of all nations inform the way I live my life? How does that inform the way I live the nativity, knowing what I know about Christ's mission For the nations. Well, it means this that Jesus' birth leads us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But you didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) Ha ha. The birth of Jesus Christ calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus enters into brokenness. And he's come to bring hope to messed up people. And since we are the recipients of such extravagant love, even scandalous grace, then we must also love people the way Jesus has loved us. And who are the people we are to love? Well, what if we just started with characteristics from this list of names? People who are small. People whom society pushes to the outside. People who do not have power. uh, People who are sinners. People who are broken and hurting in so many different ways. The types of people that others reject even up to the 10th generation. Maybe those are the kinds of people you and I to love with the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, This idea is captured uh, in one of my favorite Christmas cartoons. Here's a picture of it. It asks the question at the top, where are all the important people? Starting on the left, it points to animals. And the three wise men, foreigners, they're straw. Mary and Joseph are a couple of nobodies. We've got more animals. We've got unclean shepherds. And then we've got animal product. <laughs> he's not attended to by kings at his birth. He's not born in a palace. It's not, he's not the savior of power brokers and majorities. He's come for every person who is broken by sin For every person who would humble themselves. He enters humbly. He's exalted to the highest place. And he comes for those who would humble themselves and make him the Lord of their lives. And so maybe the coming of Jesus informs the way you and I invest our lives into other people. Maybe it calls for us to be more intentional in the way we seek to intersect our lives with others. I think we do well to posture ourselves to be ready for opportunities. And we ought to do that. We ought to live with an openness and awareness uh, to opportunities as they might just arise through the normal course of our day. But maybe since Jesus came with intentionality to seek and save the lost, you and I ought to also be more intentional in the way we love people who are hurting and broken around us. I mean, it's amazing We know this to be true. Christmas, while it brings up all these great, happy memories and experiences, also has a way of intensifying our losses and our hurts, our disappointments. Christmas is, at the same time, the most wonderful time of the year and the most excruciating time of the year. I mean, it feels like so many people are living Hallmark Channel lives, and I'm over here living C-SPAN impeachment hearings, and it's... Just my life is hot garbage, and everyone else has got it perfect and just right. And so what that requires from you as you live the nativity of Jesus Christ is to intentionally put your life, insert yourself. Don't wait to be asked. You go where you know there's a need, and you put yourself in the life of that person that you love, that person who's hurting. Who do you need to invite to dinner? What relationship requires your apology? What harm requires your forgiveness? Is there a grieving friend that needs you to be available to them? Who do you know that's lonely? What material need can you meet for another person? You know, the word Advent, it, it means arrival. Jesus Advented the first time when he was born, and he's going to Advent again when he returns for his bride, the church. And I would dare say that in between those two Advents, he is Advented every time you love your neighbor as yourself. In your gospel words, in your sacrificial acts of love, people see and hear Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, son of Tamar, son of Rahab, son of Ruth, son of Bathsheba. Matthew chapter 1 does more than just inform our theology. It informs our living. It teaches us how to live the nativity. And so here's what it's shown us this morning. It calls us to a different experience with Christmas. It means we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it means that we love our neighbor as ourselves. It's been popular in recent years to speak of the war on Christmas, and the piece of evidence that's been pushed to the forefront uh, to support this claim that there's a war on Christmas is the fact that retailers have told their employees to wish people happy holidays rather than saying Merry Christmas. So there have been many different ways some cultural leaders have told Christians they should respond to that, and maybe you've responded in different ways. That's fine. But if we were living the nativity, how would that inform our interaction with a culture that is clearly lost and that we should expect nothing better from. If we're living the nativity, I think we see the war on Christmas in a different way. Uh, The the goal is not to just get people to say Merry Christmas. What good does it do if the whole world says Merry Christmas but they can't say Jesus is Lord? What have we won if retailers have plastic greetings with no spiritual substance? I think what we've done is we've shown where our true church is. It's in the places where we shop. And we want the liturgy to be right at the altar we give our money to. See, the battle for Christmas isn't one with a greeting. The battle for Christmas is one with a giving. Jesus gave his life for ours. And because of that, we exalt him to the highest place. And we give the gospel in our lives to others. In other words, we live out the words of that beautiful song sung by the angels to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Let's pray together. To you, Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, son of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, To you, our Heavenly Father, we praise your name and we thank you for the salvation you have won for us at the cross. Help us as we strive to make sense of this long list of names and its implications for the way we live our lives. Lord, I pray that you would awaken faith in some friends here today that don't walk with you, that don't know you as their Savior. Now, they may be spiritual through and through, they may have a, a... quite a bit of history in churches of various types. but Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to the reality that their salvation is not one through their efforts, but through their faith in the one who has done all that's necessary. Help them to believe the good news, to not define themselves by their guilt and their shortcomings anymore, but instead to see their value the way you see it. And you loved them in this way. You sent your son to die on the cross that by believing in him, they would have everlasting life. And I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that we would live ferociously in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. We know something the rest of the world does not. We know the glory of this season and we know the way the incarnation impacts every day of the year. So, Lord, uh, turn our hearts, our affections towards you full throttle, and turn our efforts and strivings towards those around us with everything that we have, that in our speech and in our actions, they would see and encounter the love of Jesus Christ. Let us be a church that lives the nativity. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.